outside? Should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, this uh, episode of Ask Alan, the podcast. I'm Alan Crone, CEO of the Crone Law Firm, and we appreciate you uh, joining us today. Uh, with me uh, this week is Carol Coletta, who's the president of the uh, Memphis Riverfront Parks Partnership, uh, or the partnership as, uh, as they call it for short. She is the person in charge of uh, redeveloping and reimagining our downtown riverfront, and she's got a lot going on. We're going to find out a little bit about her and uh, a lot about the, the riverfront. Carol, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Thanks for the invitation, Alan. All right. Now, I got to take care of a little personal business. Um, today is, this will date the show a little bit, but today is my 31st wedding anniversary. How do you like that? Wow. Somebody's been married to me for 31 years, and uh, she doesn't look nearly as bad. She looks great. Uh, and I told her this morning, I said, you know, you look fabulous for somebody who's been married to me for 31 years. <laughs> and she agreed with me. So, you know, I can tell though the two of you have had a great time. We have had a good time. We've got three kids, as you know, and uh, we've, uh, we've, you know, we've had a good run. Hopefully she says, now it's only, it's not even half over yet. I said, okay, I'll take, uh, I'll take your word for that. Um, so, uh, so we had fun this, this morning. Um, well, Carol, again, I, uh, as I said, you, um, you've been in, in your current job, uh, I was going to say a little over a year, but it's longer than that, isn't it? Two years. Two years. Uh, time goes fast when you're having fun. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, tell us a little bit. You're a native Memphian. I am. You know, someone just wrote uh, on one of the blogs somewhere that somebody should give me a one-way ticket on Amtrak to go back where I came from. And I thought, well, actually I can ride a bike about 18 minutes from here. And I'm where I came from, uh, South Memphis, uh, Longview Heights. And I still have a real, um, I have such a love for South Memphis. I don't know, South Memphis, I guess it's the part of Memphis you grew up in, you know, it's always in your heart. And so I, I like to say, I've never lived north of Union Avenue, which means I've never lived outside of what once was South Memphis. That's right. Because a lot of people know it was South Memphis and Memphis, and then they joined at Union Avenue. A lot so, of people think that was something from the Civil War, but it was because of the union of the two cities. That's my understanding. So anyway, I, I, I'm a South Memphis girl and have remained there ever since. So you went to Southside High? No, I didn't. That's interesting. I I went through Longview Elementary, Longview Junior at the time, they used to call it junior high school. And then my family moved away from Longview Heights. I lived in Whitehaven for, um, uh, for oh, maybe five years and then had to get back to the city as, you know, I, I wanted to get out of the burbs, but I went to Hillcrest, graduated from Hillcrest High School. Okay, all right, very good. And then what did you do after Hill, Hillcrest High School? 
Oh my gosh. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, oh, Alan, I have an interesting life story. I had my daughter uh, very young. And so I started to Mephistate at the time uh, with a three-week-old and <laughs> oh, uh, blew through college as fast as I could. I was trying to work and juggle momhood and uh, uh, college and uh, uh, became a senior and had to drop out. Uh, because I had to really work, you know, and feed us and was out for 10 years uh, while I was working. That was, those were in the days when you could get a good job um, without a college degree. But fortunately, 10 years later, I was able to go back, change my major. <laughs> I'd finished one, but then I had a, decided I'd get a second one and, uh, and finished. So I, I was, glad of that. University of Memphis, I often say, kind of saved my life. Um, and I love the university. It's so important to so many of us who are first-gen college students. And, um, and a lot of people are in this situation that I was in for a long time. They have some college, but no degree. And that's not, especially today, when there's so few jobs that pay well uh, without a college degree, it's something that everybody you know, it's just, unfortunately, I think it's become a real, um, it's a convenient way for employers to weed people, you know, to evaluate. It's just kind of a first cut that a lot of employers make. And I think about it, if, if that had been the case, you know, when I was starting out, Alan, I don't know what my life trajectory would have been. I was just, I was really fortunate because I got a chance to work with some great companies. Um, I worked with Holiday Inns when Kimmons was still there for the only female executive vice president or uh, senior vice president, I guess. And then I got a chance to work at City Hall. Um, I started volunteering downtown uh, during the days when people were beginning to think about the rejuvenation of downtown, the early 70s. Of course, downtown had been taking a hit for a long time. And then 68, the tragic year, you know, when Dr. King was assassinated you know, that was just, and the riots occurred, as we call them, then, you know, people, that accelerated the movement out of downtown. And so in the early 70s, I was actually working, um, began in City Hall under Wythe Chandler's administration in the CAO's office, uh, working on some of the earliest downtown projects. And to find myself back here again, this many years later, uh, working in the same territory, uh, it feels like I've come full circle. But that was, it was such an incredible uh, opportunity to see, to work inside City Hall and, you know, be part of that. And I've always, I think that's one reason I so respect and admire uh, public servants because, you know, they are vilified, they, they have a hard job, they're not particularly well compensated, uh, they're, it's 24 seven. And as you know, cause you did it, it's just, um, uh, but the work they do is so fundamental to uh, all of our lives. So anyway, it was fun to be there. That was a real gift. Well, that's a, that's a great story. Uh, I say story, but that's a great narrative that you have. Um, and I always really enjoy finding out how people got where they, they are, because I think a lot of people assume um, that somehow if you get to a position like yours, that you're just kind of dropped into it and, um, you know, just kind of fell back into it, but it, it, there's a, there's a, a continuum that, that gets you there. And you're started with, uh, 
with, with what a lot of people in this town have to do is work their way through college and take a break and then come back to it when you can. Well, you know, what's also interesting is I think a lot of young people today, those on the college track, it's like they overthink it, right? They, they, they also think you've planned for this. In a lot of ways, I didn't plan for any of this. I mean, my, my life only makes sense in the rear view mirror. You know, like it all is of a piece, but this is, I'm thrilled with what I'm doing. I've had so many opportunities, but I didn't plan to work for the Knight Foundation in Miami or the Kresge Foundation or be head of CEOs for cities. I just sort of, you know, sort of took every little opportunity that came my way. And the only thing that makes sense, kind of the thread that runs through all of it, I think, is my real passion for cities and success. You know, how do you, how do cities become successful, right? Why is one city successful and another one is not? How do they thrive? Um, that's the obsession I've had since I was actually a little kid. Uh, do you know that I, I've got to tell you this one story because this okay. is a good story. No, absolutely. Go ahead. When I was in, I think, high school, I wrote Henry Loeb a letter, Henry Loeb, the mayor, and told him what he should do with Beale Street. Now, I don't know where I got the audacity to do that, but he actually passed the letter to Orel Ledbetter, who was head of the MHA, yep. Memphis Housing Authority, uh, who wrote me back. And... It's so funny, I, that's still, right? That's still a big event for me. That's someone that I could express an opinion to someone high up in the city and they would actually listen to me and respond. Um, so anyway, it's just, it's funny. I've had this passion about, you know, how do you, how do you take your assets that are undervalued and make them, you know, turn them into something that is newly, um, you know, that is seen in a new light. And I think that for me, that's what, that's why Memphis is like the juiciest uh, strategic challenge of maybe any city in America, because, because we're a majority black city in a majority black county in a metro area that is where the largest demographic is African-American. I think we know that because of where we are in America, right, racism, and, and just how we view blackness in America. We have undervalued it. And uh, so Memphis, therefore, is undervalued. And I think that's really interesting. It's like, okay, if you just kind of cut away all the morality and the, the ethics and the rightness, the wrongness of that, the wrongness of that, then you say, well, okay, so that's, those are the circumstances I, fi I find myself. Those are the cards I'm dealt. What do I do with that? How do I flip that? And to me, that that's like if you want to think about all the all the challenges in cities, that one's really interesting. And it's not a challenge that is just Memphis trying to crack because you're trying to crack it in a lot of different places. So I see that as a, an enormous opportunity for Memphis. Well, let me ask you this. Um, well, first of all. What was uh, Young Carol's uh, solution to Beale Street? Actually, you know what? You're going to laugh at this. It's not far off from what was done on Beale Street. I mean, because you remember they had redo we'd redone all the streets, and you know we had all this crazy street 
thing there and Beale Street, they weren't sure whether to tear it down and blow it up and try to do something new with it. And it was very much one of, uh, you need to hang on to the buildings, restore them and bring, you know, entertainment life to the buildings. And, um, you know, there were a couple of ways you could have done that, right? You could have done it all with TGI Fridays back in the day, or you could do it with these independent businesses with, you know, uh, local music and so forth. And I'm so glad we took the second path. It hasn't been easy, but, um, you know, and there's been lots of controversy over the years, but it was the right path to take for sure. All right. I'm going to ask you kind of a strange question. Why cities to be passionate about? You know, lots of things to be passionate about. Some people are passionate about sports, decide to make that their life's work. Some people are passionate about medicine or the law or um, uh, aviation. What was it about cities in particular that, that drew your fascination initially and then became a, became a, a career for you? Well, um, I, every Saturday when I was in, uh, you know, seventh, eighth grade, I would come down, I would get on the 13 Lauderdale bus by myself. You could do that in those days. And I came downtown on Saturday. There would be a fashion show and there would be uh, music and all kinds of things going on on Saturdays. And um, I remember walking down Beale Street and, you know, it was so weird and compelling to me. I, I just... I just fell in love. I also had this view from afar of uh, Greenwich Village, you know, all about the folk music scene. I, it sounds so crazy, but um, it, it was that and, the, and, the, and experiencing downtown at a young age. I remember uh, even sitting on the riverfront, in fact, it's my first memory of the riverfront, sitting and watching the cotton carnival barge come in and i mean my family let me just say was like we weren't in any secret societies we would never aspire to be in a secret society but it was fascinating being an observer right with that barge coming in and all lit up and the fireworks and the you know the people getting off and everything glittering and sparkling and it was just like magical i i've always thought cities were magical and it's funny if you see my vacation photos all vacation photos are like of cities, like, and, and things about cities. I was telling the staff just earlier, we were working on a redoing a, a piece of the riverfront. And I was saying, well, let me, cause I have many pictures of public restrooms <laughs> in parks. And it's like, they said, you do. And I said, yes, <laughs> I do. I photograph those and for a reason. So I'm kind of obsessed with cities and the details. Um, I, and I, you know what, it's the mix of people that I love. I mean, it's a miracle, think about it. It's a miracle that 99% of the time, this crazy diverse, you know, place called a city, people get along. They actually kind of follow the rules. They don't bump into each other. They drive their cars and don't run into each other. You know, they don't say nasty things. They say, hello. I go down to the riverfront every afternoon with my dog and people, hi, how are you? Oh, good, how are you? Oh, let me touch your dog. Can I touch your dog? People are so sweet. And the fact that it works 99% of the time is kind of a miracle. I love that. 
That's true. That's true. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a great way to, to think about it. I have uh, a, a buddy of mine who used to be law partners with Miles Mason, who's been on this show. Uh, he tells a great story about being uh, on a, in a hotel in Manhattan, sitting on a balcony, watching the traffic. And he said, I watched it for, he said, I probably was watching it for an hour and a half, just watching the traffic. And he said, I, I finally decided that it works because it can. You know, there's no reason why Manhattan traffic should work, but it does. And he says, I, the only way, it works because it can, and it's somewhat a, of a miracle. So when you were telling that, I, I kind of thought of that, that comment of, of his. Um, yeah, cities really are kind of a, a wondrous thing in, in how some cities spring up uh, for a purpose, like Memphis springs up because of the commerce on the river um, and is big, cotton, wood, shipping, and then, you know, it declines because technology changes and, and then we get FedEx. And then, and so now we have a, another reason to be, and uh, you know, the ebb and flow of that really is, is interesting. Well, and um, you know, there is a great book called triumph of the city. And um, one of the points made there is that, you know, you're always going to have economic changes, right? And and things will, as you say, ebb and flow. And the success of cities long term is their ability to adapt. And and that's one of the, the reasons that you never want to get so parochial. And I think this is very, um, this is a real danger of mid-sized cities like Memphis, is that you get, you get so parochial that you think, we're the only ones who know how to do this, or you get stuck that this is the only thing that will work. And, um, and, and you don't see that changes are coming and that you need to adapt and change. I was thinking there was a story in the Sunday New York Times, uh, Alan, I may have said, I think I sent this to you maybe on Venice. On Venice, you, you on sure Venice. did. And it was talking about Venice uh, as a monoculture, that it's become far too dependent on one industry, in the case of Venice, tourism. And that it has not, um, but Venice can be a beautiful, wonderful place to live. Uh, and there are reasons that colleges and universities and other kinds of uh, big foundations, et cetera, should want to be in Venice. But they have to accept that the, the tourism business that Venice has so depended on has also made it a monoculture and therefore put it at risk. Uh, during times like these, when the tourism, you know, industry has collapsed. And so that, um, you know, that ability to adapt and to have enough variety in one's economy, uh, I mean, there are going to be things that you're exceptionally good at doing and you need to build on those. But I think you also have to recognize that diversity uh, in the economy will help you through those economic you know, uh, upheavals that, and certainly we're going through one now. Well, let me switch gears a little bit on you. This, this period of time that we're talking about in your life, um, you know, from the time that you started Mem uh, Memphis State to the time that you, that you graduated working downtown, uh, can you recall a, a figure from that time that was, uh, that was really important to you from a mentor standpoint or just a, a career standpoint? Um, who stands out as somebody that, that really was pivotal in your life? Well, I can think, I mean, a number of people, but, you know, Ron Terry, uh, who was uh, uh, chairman of uh, 
First Tennessee, now First Horizon Bank, um, was very pivotal uh, because I went to First Tennessee or uh, in some ways to sort of flee the downtown job. And one thing, and the thing about Ron that was so pivotal, Alan, is that I would go into his office. He would have given me an assignment. I would go into his office and I would think, okay, I got this. It got, I've got the solution, here it is. And every time I walked out of his office, he would make me see that whatever I was proposing, there was a larger context. And I would go out of his office and think, oh, I now understand that as something bigger. And so he really stretched the boundaries for me um, and always made me see sort of the surrounding context. And I. That was that was huge for me, and I ran the Memphis Jobs Conference for him when he chaired it for a couple of years, and that was a pivotal moment as well. The other one was not nearly as direct or personal, but I'll just give you one other story. I had I, I used to do a radio show called Smart City, and on um, it was nationally syndicated on public radio, and I interviewed uh, Mayor Daley, Richard Daley in Chicago and he um, he sent me a, after the interview he sent me an, a book and I sent him a note to thank him for the book and then he had his team call me and say are you planning to come to the CEOs for Cities meeting in Chicago and I said well no I hadn't been invited but you tell Mayor Daly if he wants me there next time invite me I'll come and again I don't know why I was so audacious but I was and I got a call back in a couple of days saying, Mayor Daly would like to see you. Are you coming to Chicago anytime soon? And I said, you know, I do have a trip to Chicago soon. Um, and, but, you know, I'm really flexible on the dates. Sure, I'd like to visit. When is he available? So that was the pathway to my getting to run CEOs for Cities when it moved from Boston to Chicago, which was a national network of urban leaders. And we had, you know, I spent a lot of money there on research and it, it was just a phenomenal opportunity. He lived in Chicago for eight years. But Mayor Daley, I, I've remained a friend of his, but he is um, just watching him work. I mean, he's funny, he's not terribly articulate, but some of the speeches he gave and some of the ways that he worked in Chicago, I think were, um, very instructive and very inspiring. He just, he had the greatest way of including immigrants in the Chicago story. Um, and anyway, those are two people who stand out for me. Wow. Now was this, uh, Mayor Daley, was this the, uh, uh, the old man or is this the more recent Mayor Daley? The more recent Mayor Daley. Okay. Yeah. This wasn't, this wasn't, uh, uh, Democrat National Convention, 1968, no. send in the troops, Mayor Daley. No, but, it, you know, the sun, I mean, let's say, you know, the sun was right there with him and uh, has his own, you know, share of mistakes to account for. But I also think, and, and I'm not making excuses for that and don't want to address it, but I do think that, you know, anyone in the arena is is going to make mistakes. And I, I, I would like to see us get to a point we could be, we could, we could, we could accept more nuance and more uh, gray 
in how we judge each other and, and just at least take a breath. Uh, I, social media has been very um, destructive in that way. And, oh, it's terrible. And, it's terrible. I mean, it, there are good things about it. There are wonderful things about it. There are people in, you know, from my childhood I can keep in touch with that I wouldn't be otherwise. So yes, good. But um, just the vitriol and the, just the, I don't know, it just gets, gets really tiresome. Every, you know, painting with a really broad brush and do we need to make change and do all of us need to atone for things? Absolutely. But we got to give people a, a little space to make mistakes that we're human. So anyway, yeah, you know, I, I, I agree. I agree. Well, that's, uh, th those are the two fascinating, uh, uh, folks. Um, I never met, uh, Mayor Daly, but I, I, I think I met Mr. Mr. Carey, um, very early in my career, very late in his career. Uh, I think he would retired by that point, I think. Um, but, uh, he's, he's one of the legendary figures of Memphis business. Oh yeah. He's just a great guy. All right. So, um, all right, so let's talk about uh, the riverfront. Now, uh, for full disclosure to everybody, uh, I was uh, a chairman of the uh, Mayor's Riverfront Task Force, and uh, you served on that. And together we worked on a concept that uh, uh, helped guide the riverfront. And during that process, you became uh, the president of the partnership. And uh, I guess talk a little bit about, you, you, you mentioned your... Uh, earliest memories on the riverfront. Again, what's your elevator pitch on why riverfronts are important and particularly the Memphis riverfront? Um, ooh, ooh, that's a good question, the elevator pitch. Um, the riverfront is the most visible real estate in Memphis. It, its condition telegraphs uh, who we are and who we want to be as a city, like it or not. We can't hide it. Uh, it's there. And so uh, we need to get the riverfront right. And we are a city that can leave no asset behind in terms of people or places. Uh, and this is a place that has been uh, underimagined for uh, many years. That's not unusual in cities, but, but many cities on waterfronts over the last 15, 20 years have learned to reclaim their waterfronts. That's always been back of house for us, um, but no more. Uh, now it's really a people place and we're a little slow in getting started on our riverfront in earnest, but I don't think that's a terrible thing, Alan, because I think it gives us a chance to learn from the mistakes of others. It actually gives us a chance even to learn from our own mistakes. Um, I was describing to a group of people this morning that you look at a place like Mud Island, which I'm looking at out my window, which is such a remarkable peninsula out in the middle of the Mississippi River. But when we planned Mud Island in the, in the early 70s, uh, late 70s and um, late 70s and opened it in 1982, it was, it was a, it was, the program was very rigid. You, you wouldn't build a rigid program. You wouldn't build an asset today, or you shouldn't, with a rigid program. That program needs to be thought of in 100-year in cycles, right? And we don't know what, we don't know a COVID-19 is coming. We don't know what's coming next and how we will want to use this, this land. We just know it needs to be 
uh, sustainable, durable, and flexible so that people can uh, make it and reshape it over, you know, as uh, conditions change. And so making just a beautiful uh, platform for lots of different things to happen over long periods of time is what we're trying to do now. Right. And, um, you know, I think uh, that Memphis Riverfront is, is kind of a paradox in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I've seen a bunch of riverfronts. You, you organized a trip uh, for some of us to go and look at a bunch of riverfronts. I've gone to a bunch of riverfronts. Uh, I kind of grew up in St. Louis a little bit. I went to, to boarding school up there, so I know the, the St. Louis riverfront. And in a lot of ways, um, there are a lot of cities that would trade straight up with Memphis right now on the river, our riverfront as it exists. Uh, but there's also so much potential. That's kind of the paradox that I yeah. see. Yeah, there, there is so much potential. You know, the, the other thing that we, I, I think about our riverfront, I mean, in addition to being the front door to the city and the gateway to the state and, and you know, a tourist attraction, all those things. The other interesting thing about Memphis and the riverfront is that, you know, if you look at the crescent of neighborhoods around downtown, the zip codes around downtown, they are persistently low income and have been for years. And I believe if we're smart, the riverfront can do all the things it needs to do in terms of economic impact and for downtown and tourism and so forth, yes. But it can also serve people in those neighborhoods. And if we're really smart, and you and I have talked about this, like MLK Park, we can also attach the narrative of the riverfront to some of those neighborhoods that have been disinvested for years. You, you can't start with a disinvested neighborhood and believe you're going to bring it back or get the flywheel going of investment just by putting low-income housing, right? I mean, uh, and, and we need that. Uh, we need to house people in uh, places they can afford. Don't misunderstand me. But everybody, well, you know, honestly, Alan, everybody wants a Starbucks in their neighborhood. I mean, they, they, poor people want the same thing that, you know, wealthier people want in their neighborhoods. They want to have nice neighborhoods. They want to have nice amenities. So if we can sort of get the riverfront thought of as an, an amenity that's attached to all of these. So not just about attaching the riverfront north and south, it's about attaching the riverfront east and west so that neighborhoods all along and in that crescent think about the riverfront as theirs. Like that's part of our neighborhood, which I think could make everything more valuable and make the lives of people in those neighborhoods that have been, again, for years and years and years, decades, persistently poor, much better because again, a lot of those people, they're never going to get a vacation. This is their vacation on the riverfront. And that's a good, so I think of the riverfront as kind of, you know, to say nothing of the education, the health and recreation options. So it's, it's sort of a, you know, like it has uh, multiple dimensions of the investment that we make there, which is, um, super again that's that's why it's so again it's so juicy to me because it 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 sort of hits on multiple levels yeah we're building a park and parks and you know we built three assets in two years which i'm really proud of but um it it just fires on a lot of cylinders here and that's that's why 
because here's the thing in Memphis, no investment. We're, we're a mid-sized city with limited funds. We got a high poverty rate. So every invest investment we make, it better be, you know, one plus one equals eight. And that's hard to do. You got to make really careful choices. So I think that's another reason why the riverfront makes a lot of sense because it's one of those things. It's an investment that, is the gift that keeps on giving in multiple ways. Um, so that's, that's why it's important. And that's why it's important right now. Well, the Tomley Park renovation has been in the news a lot. And um, people probably expect me to ask you about that. But I want to ask you about something that is, in a lot of ways, is equally impactful, maybe not in terms of overall dollars. But, um, and that's the... Um, the fourth bluff and the um, uh, river garden and um, and I'm the, that that initiative that national initiative is escaping me right now. Reimagining uh, the civic commons. Yeah, the civic commons. Uh, talk a little bit about that um, because I think on a on a smaller scale geographically, it kind of shows you what what Tomley Park can do on a much larger scale, and yeah. what you've done has been very successful. And then. On the other end of it, talk about uh, the Cossett Library, because I don't think a lot of people really know um, or are very aware of that renovation project. Yes. Um, Reimagining the Civic Commons is something that I birthed when I was at Knight Foundation. And we put together a coalition of foundations to invest in five cities across the country. And Memphis was one of them. I don't know why, but anyway, Memphis was uh, part of the group of five. And uh, those foundations have brought resources and thought leadership to this work uh, to, to think about, um, again, parks and libraries and trails and community centers uh, and art centers um, to deliver, again, the obvious. But the question is, how do they deliver beyond uh, the obvious? So create value in surrounding uh, neighborhoods, uh, in civic engagement, uh, environmental sustainability, and one that is very close to my heart is uh, socioeconomic mixing, which sounds so like, oh, but it just really basically means mixing people of different demographics, different incomes, et cetera, in one place at in one time. So we were fortunate enough in Memphis to put together uh, four capital projects uh, uh, initially, uh, Fourth Bluff Park, the old Confederate Park, uh, River Garden, the old Jeff Davis Park, and um, a river line that connects a uh, bike ped trail, pedestrian trail that connects the entire riverfront, and the remake of Cossett Library, which is going to be so exciting. I mean, the, the, and the physicality, right, of all of these is wonderful. I mean, the design, the execution, people love the spaces. But what's really exciting is the way people are now able to use the spaces. And when I think about Cosset, which probably will open, I think maybe early next year, but it's just the redo of the, uh, not the original building, but the newer building. It's going to turn the library from a library to a real community um, asset for learning, for uh, meeting, for gathering, for eating, for 
drinking for and and with books still there and I just, I love the concept of Cosset and I, I live a block from the Cosset. So I can't wait to make it, you know, my indoor neighborhood place, just like the riverfront is my outdoor neighborhood place. Um, and uh, Shemichael um, has, who's running that project has done so much work around getting uh, just top quality people involved, like um, Little Buck you know, who's an internationally recognized uh, Jukin um, uh, dancer and, uh, and people in Memphis, you know, are going to be teaching that, I can't wait, uh, in, in Cosset. So these are, these are special spaces that we, and, and for us, it's great because we can take a small, you know, one block uh, piece of property at River Garden and we can test everything we want to do and learn in small space for what we eventually do in the 31 acres in Tom Lee. So we, it makes us much more confident about the maintenance and the care of, of, uh, of uh, Tom Lee. And it's actually influencing the design in many ways too, uh, because we know some things that uh, don't work. Uh, we know some things where people have needs that uh, we hadn't quite anticipated. So we're learning a lot in running those spaces. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Drive by, often I'll come down Interstate 40 and get off at Riverside and come down Riverside up to Union to my office, my law office. And uh, it's just, there's always somebody in that park. It may only be two or three people. Sometimes it's a whole lot more than that, but there's always somebody there. And before it was renovated, um, there wasn't everybody in that park. Nobody. Um, so I, I, it's, it's anybody who asked me, well, what are they going to do with Tom Lee? I said, go look at River Garden. It's not going to be the same, um, but that shows you the, the difference that these, these kinds of projects can make. Yeah. And, you know, we do park counts, uh, Alan. We do park counts all through the, you know, from uh, the center section all the way down to Big River Crossing uh, at points in the day. And it's been really interesting to see how uh, the closing of Riverside Drive down adjacent to Tom Lee has been just hugely popular. I knew you get you get a plug in for that. Well, I, you know what can I say? Honestly, I would never have gone. I mean, I would never have advocated going that far to close the road. You know that because yeah. we talked about it. But honestly, the difference it makes and the the joy people. That, you know that we did a word we did we surveyed lots of people in the park uh in tom lee and one I, I now i'm distracted on this but i'll tell you something really interesting we did a word we took i did verbatims from all the interviews right. and we did a word cloud right which words did they use the number one word was peaceful Mm-hmm. The second word was love. I thought, uh-oh, peace and love. This is great. You know, for woohoo, we, you know, ding, ding, ding. So uh, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been really interesting just to, to see how people uh, respond. But the park counts, back to that a minute. One thing that's interesting, as, as popular as Tom Lee has now become, with Riverside Drive closed, we still see River Garden 10 times more intensively used per acre than Tom Lee. And I just think it shows you what the potential of that park really is 
once we make those improvements. Well, let's come full circle. We started out in South Memphis, so let's end up in South Memphis um, and talk about something that's near and dear to, to your heart and my heart. And I think it's the one of the, I think it's part of the future of Memphis, and that's Martin Luther King Park, which uh, a lot of people don't know about. Uh, and if they know about it, they certainly don't know how large it is. It's a huge park um, just west of Interstate 55 at South Parkway, um, and, and it borders the river. And um, you and I have talked about that for years, that, that that could be a, at some point in the future, that could be a catalyst uh, to help uh, economic recovery in South, in South Memphis. Absolutely. Um, it's funny how many, I know a lot of very well-connected native Memphians who said, you know, I always wondered what all those trees were when I drove down I-55, you know, over there on the West and never knew there was a park there. In part, there's no signage there. You know, the signage right there on the expressway tells you T.O. Fuller Park this yeah, way. State Park, which is... It's a state park, right? Which is south and kind of far away from uh, what southwest of there, yeah. That's right. And so it's interesting. Uh, the I was over in um, uh, MOK Park the other day. One reason is because the Corps of Engineers, uh, based on an application we submitted when we first got here to the partnership, we submitted an application to the Corps of Engineers to help with a master plan for the park. And they, we, I, they all came in um, a couple of weeks ago and we walked the park, uh, which is, that'll, that'll make your day, walk the park. Uh, but it is just, it's an enormous asset. You know, that was a farm that was bought at the same time the farm that is now Overton Park was bought. And then the parkway system connected, you know, the river uh, uh, and the two, two farms that had been bought. Um, and Overton Park, you know, they stopped the expressway going through it. It has a conservancy. It's, you know, it's been invested in and lifted up while MLK Park, originally called Riverside Park, has really, you know, had an expressway take some, take a piece off on the, on the east and then, you know, does not have a conservancy, um, hasn't had the uplift. And I just think it, it is a jewel uh, in the making, there is forest, there's the, there's McKellar Lake, uh, there's Treasure Island across from it. Um, it it's, it's just wait, it's got, uh, it's got, to, it's got topography, yay, topography in flat Memphis. So it's a special place, um, incredible trees, and a golf course that is a nine hole that is not irrigated. <clears throat> and you know, Pine Hills is close by. I know there are some people who love the golf course and I'm, I'm, it's not up to me to what to do with the golf course, but you can imagine it as a phenomenal festival grounds. So who knows what becomes of um, MLK Park. We're also part of this Corps of Engineers study, um, Alan, is looking at the entrances. It's hard to find the entrance to that park. So, you know, just some obvious things and then some promotion we, we'd like to do. MLK is on every map we've put out on the riverfront because we want people to find their way there. And we hope we're going to create a better bike link to um, from Big River Crossing and um, uh, 
the, the sort of central part of the park north of I-55. Um, and then we manage two of the parks now, Crump and um, Chickasaw Heritage, south of I-55. And then it's just, it's just, you know, a short jump to MLK. So there, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, real estate speculators. That's a, a very interesting place to look. Between those two parks and MLK, I kind of see a gold coast like Chicago's gold coast of, of uh, uh, high rises and, and uh, mixed use. Uh, and that could really bring back South Parkway is a great um, business commercial strip. And then that neighborhood, which is right there and connects to the park with some overpasses, it wouldn't take a lot to, um, to really bring that area back. And, and as you said before, um, make sure that we don't um, price it out for uh, working people, but have a good uh, demographic breakdown there. Uh, really could be a fabulous, uh, and I think that's probably uh, be measured in decades rather than years when that's gonna happen, because we got a lot of work to do north of, of uh, I-55, but uh, I, I just, I mentioned it because I'd, I'd like to put it on everybody's radar screen, uh, folks more creative uh, than I am, you know, how can we bring that park back and, um, and thus bring back that whole section of, uh, of Memphis, which is, uh, as you say, undervalued, underutilized, and uh, has a, a lot of rich history of folks that, uh, that grew up there. It's got great housing stock. You know, the, the house I lived in in Longview Heights, it was, it's a Fieldstone house. You know, the whole neighborhood's Fieldstone. If you look around South Memphis, there's a lot of strength in the housing stock. A lot of it is is like what's around Rhodes College. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just in the, you know, in a neighborhood that doesn't have the same value. I'll just put one other thing on the radar that's related. I think, you know, if you look at coming off the expressway on third, going north on third, you know, you can hit FedEx Forum, the new Fed, FedEx headquarters, you can hit Service Master, you can hit the Peabody, uh, you, uh, uh, AutoZone Park, uh, Indigo Ag. I mean, Third Street, if we looked at that as a new corridor into downtown, I think that's the other thing that could sort of fly, you know, you have MLK, then you have Third Street, and then you, you know, then you have uh, um, what goes straight through town. I can't think of a number, but, you know, the Medical Center Expressway, you know, the expressway that goes from the airport straight up, you know. Oh, 240. You, yeah, 240. So you have, you know, you, that could be another really strong corridor. And if you look at it, you got plenty of room on third. It's a very wide street. And there are lots of opportunities for redevelopment in there. So, um, yeah, you know, I agree with you. It just takes someone with real estate know-how and more imagination and the ability to really appreciate what that community is today and the people who are there, but also can be. Um, so let's, maybe somebody, you know, we know will take an interest. I don't know. Well, Carol, that's about all the time uh, we've got today, but we did, here's what we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about Greenbelt Park. We didn't talk about Mud Island, really. We didn't talk about uh, Tom Lee Park very much um, uh, or Martyrs Park or any of those parks up that you mentioned uh, around Interstate 55. So I, I hope you'll come back on the show and we'll talk about more on the riverfront sometime. I'd love to. Thanks, Alan. All right. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate everybody watching. 
And uh, I'm, we're going to close out for now. But thank you for watching. Thank you again, Carol. And uh, I'm going to go back and try to get a little justice.